0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Heretics Podcast. I'm Graham Barlow and I'm joined with Damon Smith here for another episode of the History of Jiu-Jitsu and Kempo, Part 2. Hello Damon, how are you? I'm okay, Graham. How are you doing? I'm not bad. I've just about recovered from the massive history dump of the last episode. <laughs> um, I thought I'd just start off by recapping what we did uh, oh. and why we did it, just yeah. for people who may have missed that last episode or want to refresh their minds about what's going on. So you basically went through the history of the shogunate. So back in 1185, you had the Kamakura, and then yeah. you went on to the Ashikaga, which is where we started to get the trade of China coming in and yeah. the, the, like martial military expertise from China getting shipped into Japan. And it became known as Kenpo, which was, you know, yeah. Chinese martial arts. Um, And then on to the Warring States period, the Sengoku period, where people were actually using this stuff for real, fighting lots and lots of battles, which eventually resolved into the Tokugawa um, shoguns, which is uh, 1603 onwards, I think. So that's the period where society changed dramatically in Japan. We went from a very warring period where people were generally fighting all the time to a period of stability. In which it was a period of peace, but at the same time it was a very controlled society, and the martial art traditions became equally controlled and more divorced from the reality of everyday fighting. Is that fair enough?
1: Yeah, it's fair enough. I mean, you know, because we we did the whole, <laughs> we did a huge amount of history in one episode. Yeah. So there are certain things that are um, slightly simplified in in that summary. Yeah. I guess one that occurs to me is the back end of the Sengoku period. There were a couple of warlords who effectively um, had got Japan to the verge of reunifying before Tokugawa Ieyasu took command, if you like. Mm. And they were Oda Nobunaga and Toyotomi Hideyoshi. And so there was a little bit at the back end of the Sengoku period that had some Tokugawa-like overtones. Yes, um, yes, yeah, yes.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't like a, like a clear division. There was just a kind of a... I think a blending the, of the two.
1: Yeah, I think the thing that the thing that was really clear, the thing thinking back on it, the thing that was really clear with the Tokugawa shogunate was their obsession with Confucianism. The Ashikagas, you know, they probably had a bit of respect for Confucianism, and a lot of the daimyo in that in that warring state period, the great names, in their actions, they didn't display a great reverence for Confucius or Confucianism. No, um, and. For those who don't know what Confucianism is all about, one of the things that people in the East often accuse us in the West is that we have a, a, a sort of compartmentalized view of the world. I think there was an author that actually took the mickey out of this. It wasn't actually a, a, a Chinese author who was pretending to be one. And he was talking about a Chinese encyclopedia, hypothetical Chinese encyclopedia, and he's talking about the animals in it and this, the classifications of the animals in this encyclopedia. And the first classification of the animals was those that belong to the emperor. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, we would probably classify them into reptiles and <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, mammals and what have you, you know, but those those who belong to the emperor, you know. And so I think the the Confucius. If you go, we're going back a long way now, yeah. This is this is BC. We're going the wrong way now. We should be yeah, going forward. Yeah, we'll get <laughs> we're going to get but we are going forward from sixteen hundred because Confucius is what effectively what happened to Japan after sixteen hundred.
0: Yeah, the Tokugawa.
1: Yeah, and the the key point with Confucianism is Confucianism has a compartmentalized view of society in the same way that the people in the east often include us in the west of having compartmentalized view of society uh-huh. and what confucius wanted was everyone to sit in their little box and know their place and if everybody just did that then there would be peace for all time uh, and there'd be no problems and everybody you know people everybody everybody is in a relationship pair with everybody else people
0: know but, what they should be doing and they know yes, their place yes
1: yes and pairs are never equal there's always a superior and an inferior and the superior the, the inferior person has a duty of filial piety to the superior person so that's a son to his father or a, a, um a citizen to the emperor um it's that kind of filial piety that or a duty of reverence to their senior in the in the binary pair uh, a wife to her husband is another part of confucianism but to be fair to Confucius, the opposite is also supposed to be true. The senior one in the pair is supposed to have a duty of care towards the junior one. The problem with this particular system of government is that the you know that's entirely uh, up to the character of the senior one in the pair, and so basically the Tokugawa put. The, the, uh, obviously Confucius being a scholar had had the scholars in the most senior place in society. Uh, the, the Tokugawa simply substituted the Tokugawa's into the place of the scholars.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> and, yeah.
1: uh, yeah. So. So effectively, Japan became—I think we said last time—Japan became stilted, and that was across the whole of society. Everything was regulated, rules and regulations. Samurai spent way more time doing bureaucracy than they did doing fighting or practicing martial arts. That's for sure. Um, and they, for instance, that later on they had a, an income, guaranteed income from the government, that and that was effectively a bribe to stop them causing trouble, uh-huh. um, and it and it was called their stipend. And unfortunately for them, it was often paid in rice rather than in hard cash. <laughs> and you can imagine, as, yeah. as as the rise of the merchant class and modern sort of economics started to to cut in, they they weren't too happy about that. <laughs>
0: yeah, your your um, your explanation of the Tokugawa period and the stiltedness uh, explained yeah. a lot for me about. Uh, I mean, when I was growing up, I I was you know fascinated by martial arts, um, in particular because of the, the you know the, the David Carradine kung fu tv series sure. which to be fair he was mainly doing judo and <laughs> it was called kung fu <laughs> he didn't know any kung fu but I, yeah. the, you know, it had the kind of ethos of the the shaolin monk and all that kind i of believe
1: stuff. i believe he did take it up in later life
0: in later life he did in fact yeah, if yeah. you've you've not lived until you've seen david Carradine's kung fu workout video well, which, which is a, i think it's on youtube somewhere but it, it is a, a, a it's something special so we just say that <laughs> and his tai chi video as well that's also yeah. incredible um i can imagine i can imagine but i I was never attracted to uh, japanese martial arts because uh, i i was looking for this sort of fluid flowing style that i'd seen on tv yeah and when i looked at you know like the local karate club it was very staccato very it it just it just didn't appeal to me at all it was just not something i was interested and that is the influence isn't it of the tokugawa Exactly, Shogunite.
1: and I bet for you personally, uh, I, I, that, you having the desire for that flowing style, I can see that's what got you into Tai Chi, and I can see that's what got you into BJJ.
0: Yes, exactly. Uh, that's yeah, exactly yeah. the thing. I was always only ever interested in that kind of fluid. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, obviously, if if you're going to use something in a practical situation, that you it just doesn't look like it works if you, if you just yeah, yeah. Stop, well, doesn't, start, doesn't stop, stop start stop start yeah it's you know, just, i mean that's one of the i
1: mean we we're, we're, we're skipping ahead a little past 1850 but not much a uh, kano the guy who created judo uh, his students very quickly i mean within a couple of years of him founding the kodokan uh, his students very quickly started beating a lot of these old koryu guys they were they were um, challenged in to a number of challenges by by koryu jiu jitsu Yes. Experts, and they trashed them, a couple of them. Well, it's said uh, that he's
0: meant to have beaten his teachers as well. Yeah,
1: well, that's the the issue here is that, you know, we're, we're jumping out a little bit, but Kano didn't actually study Jiu-Jitsu for very long before he created Judo. Especially if you take the Kodokan's official date for the founding of Judo. Mm. He's from being a robber. I mean, he went to he went to university, incidentally, he went to the Tokyo Imperial University, which is as was a center of jiu-jitsu in the modernization of Japan. After the, the shogunate fell, mm. the universities came, became centers of of modernization in Japan. And so there were around the Imperial University in Tokyo, there was a modernization effort went on around jitsu. And similarly, in Osaka, at the Kansai University, or near Osaka, the Kansai University, there was a modernization effort went around Kempo at the same time. So give give you an idea of the time period we're talking about, turn of the century, that's around 1900, Kano was in his 40s. That, mm. that gives you his age, yeah? Mm. But the time period of his kind of success, he was, he was that early success that sort of helped him found Judo. He's a very young man. He was actually...
0: Early 20s, wasn't
1: it? Yeah, absolutely. 18 when he went to university. So it's was basically 18 years old when he started studying Jiu-Jitsu. As a
0: complete beginner,
1: too. As, as a complete beginner, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, he'd had an interest in martial arts. He'd just never been able to pursue it because he'd never been able, had access to a teacher. And then he went to university, he got access to Fukuda. Uh, or to pronounce it as um, an English person, Fukuda. Oh. Uh, Hachinosuke, And he started studying jujitsu under him.
0: Tenshin Shinyu Ryu, I think, wasn't
1: it? Do you it's pronounced mate so the R s <laughs> ha- half halfway between an L and an R. Say and, again. Uh, okay. it, it, say again. Do you
0: Okay. Say
1: R, but, <laughs> d- say ah but say ah but at the same time use your tongue like you're saying L. Do. Like that, yeah. It or, or just say Ryu like a lot of the people Ryu. in my YouTube videos do. <laughs> Ryu. you. <laughs> So yeah, so you're talking about uh, 1877, uh, which was interestingly that was the year of the Satsuma Rebellion as well. Uh, the Satsuma Rebellion, the guys who, the guys who ultimately overthrew the Tokugawa government, they were it was an alliance between three parties, one of whom you're very familiar with, um, the secret alliance. So one one was the people of Choshu, there was the people from Satsuma. And then there was the British. Um, and this all started from a very interesting incident whereby early on, the, um, it also was, let's say late in the Tokugawa period, oh. really late in the Tokugawa period, Matthew Perry, who's an American Commodore, uh, 1853, he sailed into Japanese waters. With he wanted to deliver a message to the emperor, basically from President Fillmore, I think it was, uh, saying, "Hey, open up Japan to trade." Because you know, for for all the Tokugawa period, one of the ways the Tokugawa locked down society in this Confucian style was it was called Sukoku, the locked country. And basically they locked everybody out as well because they didn't want any influence coming in from the outside. And so Perry came in 1853 and said, hey, we'd like you to open it up. Uh, and of course he came with four really modern warships. <laughs> and I think, yeah. the, um, I think the Japanese response was to line their sumo wrestlers up along the quayside. <laughs> <laughs> an, attempt, an attempt to uh, attempt, intimidate these modern warships you know? probably fired all their guns <laughs> over the sumo
0: wrestlers heads uh <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. i think
1: that i think the japanese got the message to a certain extent you know just a bit earlier than this the uh there had been the opium wars the famous opium wars between britain and china and, and the chinese had basically been trashed you know and they had yeah. all you know and the Japanese had learned this lesson this much. So they knew they, they couldn't just tell them to get lost because they knew they were, the Western powers would crush them. Yeah. Um, so they didn't tell them to get lost. They did pretty much what the uh, Chinese government had done as a result of the Opium Wars, is they sort of caved in to Western pressure from Britain and, and America and France and virtually everybody. And they, they signed what were known as these unequal trade treaties which weren't there certainly weren't reciprocal agreements, and they were very similar to the unfair agreements that Britain had signed with the with the Chinese after the two Opium Wars, which is how we end up getting Hong Kong and all that stuff, you know. So effectively, and uh, uh, sorry, there's also the Boxer Rebellion, but that that really hasn't happened yet. Yeah, so yeah,
0: that's a lot. That was late. Well, not that much later, wasn't it? But not
1: that much later, not that right. much later. But you know, actually,
0: years, forty years later,
1: yeah. Yeah, and actually, by that time, Japan was was on our side. <laughs> they were just as imperial as the British were. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> so we all we all went in and exploited China together. So basically, this this period in in Japanese history is known as the Bakamatsu period. It was the end. Now, this, the the things that people talk about the official story is the Satsuma. The, there's a clan called the Shimazu. And the Choshu banded together. And they eventually were able to overthrow the Shogunate with British help. But the interesting thing about how they got the British help was there was a merchant called Charles Richardson, who went to Japan, to, I think, to try and trade in uh, 1862. So this is after the end of the Second War, just after the end of the Second Opium War. And just after kano had been born you know the founder of Judo just after he'd been born oh. and apparently he was on the the road from I think it was the road from Osaka up to Tokyo, which was then called Edo uh, it's been renamed and um he was he was going along with his friends and, and apparently apparently he, he was quite an arrogant guy he'd been in China. And he, he was—he'd been bragging about, he telling his friends how he knew how to treat these natives, oh. uh, and you mustn't cave in, and you mustn't show any sort of deference whatsoever. And the unlucky guy um, just happened to, unfortunately, ride into the path of the uh, the retinue of Shimazu Hisamitsu who was the regent of the daimyo of Satsuma, one of the most powerful provinces in the whole of Japan. Yeah. So uh, incidentally, the Satsuma guys, the Satsuma samurai were the ones who invaded a lot earlier, the early 1600s, who had invaded Okinawa. And so, you know, started the process, you know, banned the Okinawans from having weapons. And that's where karate in Okinawa started to, you know, these are the same people, very, very warlike clan. And so this guy rode in front and he, he had repeated warnings to, to move out of the way and he wouldn't and he rode, apparently ride right up to the sort of carriage that the Daimyo's w- father was in. Mm. And uh, and naturally the, the samurai stabbed him. I don't, they don't were think they to th- they <laughs> stabbed they stabbed him. They actually weren't, but they didn't know that. Because the Tokugawa government had just signed an unequal treaty <laughs> with oh. the, the British, giving um Western power western Citizens were exempt from those killing and going away laws. Oh, right. So actually, okay. they weren't allowed they to They were
0: no.
1: Yeah, but they didn't know that because the the they weren't Tokugawa. They were from Satsuma, which is right down in the south of Japan. So they um they didn't know. So you know, and you know it it, it was automatic for them. If any if any riffraff give uh, insolent, I mean they were lucky. Didn't kill a whole lot of them. You know, mm, yeah. <laughs> it's like. So, anyway, so the British weren't very happy about this, and so they demanded reparations. So, this happened closer, um, this happened closer to Tokyo. not Edo, sorry. But the, the, this guy was on his way back, you know, the, there was a, the, all the daimyo and, and important figures had to spend a lot of time in Edo with the shogun. That had been a long-standing tradition. It's one of the ways the Tokugawa... Remember I said rules and regulations, what the Tokugawa were all about.
0: Mm. The
1: Tokugawa shoguns wanted to see the daimyo from all over Japan in the capital, no matter how far away they're actually from. Uh, they wanted to see them spending large time periods there and also spending lots of money on their mansions. The idea being that they were the, the, the Tokugawa created this culture in which the, the great names, the daimyo... Had to spend oodles of cash uh, trying to outdo each other, you know, like keeping up with the Joneses yes, in, yes. Their, in their gold plating and their, you know. And the, th- the Tokugawa's quite clever theory was if they're spending money doing up their mansions, they aren't spending money on arms and military affairs. Yeah, that was that. Uh,
0: yeah, being rebellious. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. And so, anyway, so this was where they, the, the first time the Japanese tested the British. And so the British uh, sent a naval squadron to uh, Kagoshima, and uh, basically, which is which is a, a Satsuma kind of headquarters, mm. and demanded reparations for this guy uh, Charles Richardson, uh, which wasn't forthcoming because the the Satsuma were very proud warriors, they had a very proud warrior tradition. Uh, so the British flattened the place. <laughs> <laughs> basically okay. with, yeah with, and, with,
0: with guns from a, a very from, from, their sort, ships, from their ships
1: from their yeah. ships yeah and of course the the japanese actually the satsuma were ironically although they were they were associated with the sono joy movement the the um, revere the emperor and uh, expel the barbarians that was us the barbarians yeah yeah ironically they were actually one of the more progressive of the clans and they did have some coastal defenses and they actually managed to Kill a couple of, kill a few British sailors. And I, I believe they managed to kill a, a, a fairly senior naval officer. But in, in return for their entire, entire town being flattened. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, not very equal exchange. And you know, but what's very interesting, you know, one of the things I've seen in the martial arts over the years, and maybe you've seen this kind of thing as well, is the reaction of the, the, the Satsuma warriors. Um, you know, one, one of the things you, you may be, I'm not going to name any names, but you've maybe seen this as well over the years. Yeah, I've trained at a lot of different martial arts, a lot of different um, training halls, dojos, different associations, different martial arts groups. Oh. And, and often, sometimes I've seen somebody who, who thinks they're quite senior in a martial art come up against somebody who, who beats them uncomfortably easily in some scenario, Hmm. Um, one of the things you'll have seen this loads in terms of the ground fighting stuff you know uh, people who haven't seen ground fighting uh, i've never actually done any it comes as a bit of a shock and this is also true of knife fighting too you know um years ago a friend of mine um I was trained with him. I used to do I, I spent about a decade with this guy just training weapons. We trained knife, we trained sword, we sword six, sticks and mismatched weapons, even hammers, stuff like that. Yeah. And then he had a friend who was a senior instructor in a particular martial art. I won't say which one. And he came along and because he was good at unarmed fighting, he thought he would be good with a knife. And and he just wasn't. Yeah <laughs> you yeah. know. And and he he was he was very um, angry with himself. Uh, he felt like he should have done better against us. Um, so basically, he was just getting cut left, right, and centre. He couldn't land a single cut on us, you know. Mm, right. um, uh, but that was—it's just, just what he's familiar with, you know. Yeah, if I mean, wasn't familiar I, I, with that.
0: I mean, I—I I was that person as well. Like when I started uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you know, I—I've I, been doing martial arts for. I don't know how well, a long time not, not 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 you know a massive amount of time but long enough that sure. I could do something and then yeah. you know as, as soon as you get on the ground it's all different and you know the first three months it took me three months until I managed to submit somebody you know is, <laughs> that's, a, that's a long time <laughs> yeah. but what you know once you've but equally you only have to have a little bit of knowledge. And suddenly, compared to someone who has no knowledge in that, art, exactly, you're a streets ahead. I mean, it's 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 so, just a complete mismatch. Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean that that's true of uh, ground fighting. Take ground fighting as an example. Uh, you know, I've done a bit of sumo and I've done a bit of um, yeah, I did a tiny bit of BJJ uh, and I did quite a bit of judo when I was a young man and when I was a kid.
0: Yeah, um, and I, MMA and well, things as well. You've done,
1: yeah, yeah, and more recent years done MMA as well. Yeah, so the issue really is. That you you see those guys like I mean you know Heist Gracie springs to mind obviously you know yeah that's a classic example isn't it? Yes. to beat somebody like that you have to be phenomenal, but for for somebody who's got say as a stand up fighter and wants to be able to beat your average um, your average sort of I don't know BJJ blue belt or something like that you know yeah it doesn't take them the decades and decades that that guy's put into it. It just takes a little bit of knowledge to stand a chance, you know. Yeah. And um, and I think that Chuck Liddell, when he arrived in the UFC, he um, obviously I'm a bit biased because he's a Kenpo guy, but you know, you've got a bit of a soft spot
0: for he, old Chuck,
1: haven't you? Yeah, I, I, I love the guy. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, his teacher Hackelman is just wonderful. Uh, yeah. We we subscribe to his online dojo. Me and my friends subscribe yeah. to his online dojo. The pit is a wonderful. He's a he's an untapped gem. That guy. And, um, the overhand the,
0: right, Chuck Fidel's overhand right, that's the thing. Isn't yeah, it? yeah it's nice, isn't it? And yeah. it's this also is... so similar to Charlie Futt as well. It's, it's what I like about him.
1: Yeah, and it's so much easier than choking him out, you <laughs> know? <laughs> yes. Just swing yeah. this, massive, this massive club
0: in their direction. Yeah, right? and that, if you hit that's something, wonderful. You're good. <laughs> so if
1: anybody hasn't come across The Pit, do a look it up. They're, they're wonderful, those guys. Absolutely they're, wonderful. The
0: Pit, is that, is that their website?
1: That That's uh, Hackleman's uh, online dojo. Um, I think it's what they call their actual dojo, right? Uh, and that that's that's Hawaiian tempo, and you know, uh, if you want to see tempo from the Western hemisphere, that's good. Then look those guys up. Yeah. yeah. So, so basically, yeah, like you say, you know, it it, it and uh, one of the things that I want to ask you about was this thing with scope. You know, I mean, BJJ's established quite a reputation for itself, hasn't it? You know, in terms of... I think it's what Hoist Gracie did in that in those original UFCs that started it off.
0: Yes, And yes, um, definitely.
1: And I, th- I think that one of the things that happened with the Tokugawa martial arts was was a serious reduction in the scope of what they were doing. And so I think that one of the things that's, that's very interesting in that, and maybe is a good lead-in to the Take No Uchi-Ru. Take no uchi ru is one of the root schools that give rise to, ultimately, to ju- Judo and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Is, this, is this thing of a, is it really, you know, what, what makes a martial art? Is it really the techniques of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu um, that are making it an effective art when it's used by those guys? mean I'm talking about, you know, of course, Dick is a as a, yeah. an example. Yeah, yeah. Is it really the technique? I mean, I've done martial arts a long time. When I watched that guy, I see a guy was just titanic experience, and I see him doing techniques that are in a you know, twenty, thirty different martial arts that I'm aware of, uh, judo being an obvious one. You know. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And, I mean, there's,
1: there's videos. Is it not? I mean, they, they train. I know they train hard. They certainly did when they were kids, and I suspect that a lot of these stilted schools. In China as well, you know, you know, people are a bit down on kung fu and in inverted commas, they and you know they, they ain't training very hard. You know, they, if you got the average kung, kung fu school, they turn up once or twice a week if you're lucky, uh, and that's if they're not having their hair permed or something, you know. Yeah. Whereas I I suspect that the Gracie family were rolling around on the floor all day long for their entire lives. Yeah, you
0: know? and, and there's there's videos of them because uh, they they lived in like a, a there's there so many of them it was like a commune essentially. So they lived on a like a, a farmstead, uh, yeah. and they they just lived, breathed, and ate jujitsu constantly. You know, their they brothers training with brothers, so there's always a bigger brother to keep you in your place, and there's always someone yeah. just ahead of you to sort of look up to and and mentor you. So that they, they were they were just continually training, um, and they were, you know, it was the family business. Is the other thing. Sure. So they didn't have to go and do another job. <laughs>
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, so,
0: it, I mean, in that environment, the only thing I'm thinking that's similar to that, it, obviously, there's all the stuff in Japan, but you know, when you had the idea of Shaolin monks, which this is probably mythical as well, but you know, if, if they had nothing to do all day except train, yeah, and no distractions, uh, exactly. it, it's that kind of environment, and that breeds uh, those exceptional individuals. That, yeah. you know, I, and I also think about this in terms of the uh, the, the, the Chen Village in China with Chen tai chi uh so many people in one place all studying the same thing you know raises the standard of the group
1: yeah absolutely and i i I, this is kind of my my feeling about what happened with that tokugawa period you might think that they they were paid a stipend to practice martial arts all day long but actually they weren't They they were paid a stipend to practice bureaucracy all day long and I think a lot of that stiltness came out of it. And this is what happened with Kano and his early students. They weren't that experienced. You know, I mean, Kano, if, if you believe the Kodokan, Kano founded judo five or six years after being a raw beginner. You know, it, it's, um, that's, um, you know, and you think these martial arts that make you take 20 years to get your black belt, you know, but there's, yeah, yeah. there's a guy founding his own martial art after five
0: or six years. You yeah, know. Oh, oh, yes, going from nothing to, which, I mean, I, I put that down to the, his practice of Randori. Uh, you know i I think if you've got what i was going to say yeah if you yeah sorry to (laughs) preempt you there but basically (laughs) if you've got like like 20 techniques that's all you've got but you do randori with them and you just practice them all the time you do all day against real resistance you can get you you can you can actually you can just leave you can leave people standing who don't do that and that's something i get from jiu-jitsu is uh the brazilian style is half the class is sparring every time yeah yeah. Um, apart from some of the very beginner's class where, you know, because, you know, when you get a raw beginner in, mean, they're, they're kind of a, a danger to themselves and others when they start off. But in like an advanced class, half the class is sparring, sometimes more than half the class, and it's every time. And that's what builds the skill. Um, yeah. You know, that you just learn, you learn the basic techniques and then you develop, you develop it yourself, and all the little intricacies that you would never get unless someone exactly. is trying to stop exactly. you doing what you're doing. And that's exactly. how, you know, the, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu especially, branches off into so many kind of substars within it. Um, yeah. it, it, it you can't keep up with it, it, it you know. The, and the game is still developing, and like new techniques are coming. Well, not new techniques, but like an old technique with a new emphasis. They're continu- like, I they went through recently. We went through this kind of footlock phase, and well, obviously, footlocks have been around since the year dot in you know Japanese styles. But yeah. they're, they're, the the switch of emphasis to footlocks being this kind of uh, yeah. it was just an automatic way to win a competition for a sure. while and then sure. and then obviously everyone trains it everyone catches up and then the game changes again so it's it's like evolution you know it's yeah. continually being pushed to the limit and then adapting and then moving on
1: yeah i I um had this in the 80s with i had I used to teach two well, two stroke three. I mean, I, you know, as you know, I did Shingy in the 80s. Uh, but it wasn't, Before I'd ever heard of it, yes. Nobody had ever heard of it. <laughs> so, so to say that it wasn't popular, I mean, it still isn't, as you know. Uh, but I, I had two classes that were moderately popular. I, I, had, I had quite a big karate class that I used to teach. Uh, this is up in Scotland. And then oh. I had a, a much smaller kempo class. And every now and again, I would persuade somebody from the karate class to go to the Kenpo class. And they would be h- humiliated. And it's exactly what you're talking about. The Kenpo class spent, you know, out of an hour and a half training, they spend an hour sparring. And the, the karate classes marching up and down the hall, doing your katas, doing it, you know. And they, they do a little bit of sparring, but it's more like slap fighting, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not putting karate down. I mean, there's some great karate styles. Just this was Japanese karate. Yeah. I mean, um, like anything, um, it
0: depends how you train it, doesn't
1: it? Yeah, exactly. You know, I had, I had yellow belts in my Kenpo class trashing black belts <laughs> yeah for my karate class and i taught them both you know <laughs> yeah and so you know that that showed me how important culture the culture of the training environment is
0: yeah we get that in uh, like in brazilian jiu-jitsu like you get these black belts in karate or something or uh, you know they're coming and they 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 they, they look a frustration on their face when like yeah. a like a like a mere blue belt just dominates them completely <laughs> and they yeah. just can't believe it you know this is yeah. just look of I mean, it's just incomprehensible to them what's happening to them um yeah. and i mean it was sometimes you get like i mean i was rolling with this guy the other day and he i won't say his name but he'd been doing judo for seven years i don't know what i mean I, i'm assuming he was quite a high belt um, yeah. and i was it, on the ground he 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 just everything he did didn't work no. And, I, and, I, and I was, hold oh, no, he'd do something, I'd just step slightly, i just move slightly to the side, so neutralise it completely, and then he'd just go, ah!
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is also scope. I mean, there's two things going on there. You know, Judo has a set of rules. Yeah, he, he um, was talking
0: about the rules about the, the twenty seconds. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. And if
1: he pants you pins you on your back for twenty seconds or if he throws you reasonably heavily onto the floor, then he's won, you know. Um and I've heard, you know, in, in BJJ that's not true. You have to submit, you know, it has to be submitted. And I think that I think that's what's very interesting um in, in terms of that is the famous uh, fight between Kimura and uh Elio Gracie. Yeah. The,
0: the classic the classic match.
1: Yeah, I mean it's very very impressive on the part of Elio Gracie. I mean it was it was outclassed and uh outweighted um and he still put up a decent so, fight. So just
0: recap that, just to explain who Kimura was for, for the listeners.
1: So Kimura was a judo champion um and he basically went around the world to try and make a bit of money. Um he went around the world trying to do sort of shows. So he took on wrestlers and various other people. So, basically, uh, he was a bit of a star. He, he wasn't, as is portrayed, the greatest judoka of all time. Uh, but he was very, very good. Yeah. Um, he The greatest um, judoka of all time is probably Yamashita. But, you know, who can say, based on his record, you know. So, basically, that's what he did. And he, they put on show matches. And one of these was with Elio Gracie. And, um, of course, it was under BJJ rules. Um, because if it'd been under, if it'd been under judo rules, it'd been over very very fast. Yes, um, so it was. It
0: was like submission was the yeah. only way to win, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and so the Kimura. The, what was really impressive about it was how much trouble Kimura had getting him. I mean, Kimura was.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had, you had was, no was trouble m- throwing him, did he? But. <laughs> Finishing him off
1: with a different method. well because ne- he's he'd fought under judo rules. You don't have to finish people off in judo. That's the point. No, yeah. um, but I mean, you know, to be fair to them, you know, if some of the some of the throws those top judo guys can do, if they threw you onto concrete, uh, the, oh, the be
0: dead. fight yeah. might yeah. well be
1: over anyway. Yeah. So to be fair, there is something in that. You know.
0: Yeah, we've got um, uh, we've got the Olympic uh, in Bath where I train. There's the Olympic um, judo team train there too. And occasionally, yeah, yeah. one of them will, you know, will, will, will interact with them a bit. And, and yeah. they're, they're just phenomenal. I mean, you know, yeah, you, yeah. it's... The, Within their narrow world view, yeah. Well, I mean, standing up, like, as soon as you're standing yeah, yeah. up, like, you don't want to be standing up with this guy. So, like, <laughs> it's amazing as well to sit on your ass. Immediately. Yeah. <laughs> we, we all just, foot on the hip, sit on the ass, And then we're back in Jiu-Jitsu world where it's all safe. And, you know? and it, is,
1: it is quite funny, isn't it? I mean, you know, I don't know if anybody ever noticed this, but, you know, Akebono, all of his MMA fights, he won under sumo rules. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, he, and his K1, including the one against Heuss Kweisi, yeah, He won every single one of those. But Heist did that in that fight. He just sat straight down, you know, deliberately. You know, Yeah, of course, of course he uh, would yeah. he? I mean,
0: I'm not going to stand up
1: for <laughs> so, <with> this guy. <laughs> I'm not stupid. So, quite interesting. You know, my, my sort of British sense of fairness comes out. I think these, there should be returns, you know. There should be a return match. Um, you know, if what you're going to fight rules. under... Yeah, if you're going to fight MMA guys under MMA rules, they, they should go back and you know some of the MMA guys should go back and fight under sumo rules. There's a lot of money in sumo, so if they can pull it off, um, it, it would be very profitable for them. Yeah, you know.
0: So Kimura, anyway. Sorry, I diverged. So,
1: so no. It, it, what's really interesting is Kimura was a bit like a guy called um, Tomita Tunejiro who was effectively after so basically what happened was Kano's sensei died this is how Kano, Kano ended up head of the dojo at a very young age yes yeah yeah this my teacher didn't this happened to me when I was younger my teacher didn't die he just left <laughs> <laughs> that's how I ended up teaching a karate class at a relatively young age you know mm. um but this guy, Tomita Tsunejiro, was his very first student. And, the, you know, the today, even today, maintains this book of members. And every member is numbered. Uh, and I don't know what number they must be up to now. It must be huge. We're in the millions, you know. Mm. But but the number one member in that book is this guy, Tomita Tsunejiro, who was uh, Kano's, one of the two guys that Kano used to to demonstrate the kind of power of his his new system. It was called Kanō Ryu Jujitsu, and as you're probably aware, it was a, it was a combination of three uh, different schools that had come down yeah. to the Tokugawa period. So there was obviously the Kitoryu, which is where the focus on randori came from the 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 focus on the the, the rolling around all day on your ground. Yeah, yeah that, that's where that's the Kitoryu is where that came out of. Right, and there was the uh, Tenjin Shinryu Ryu, as you mentioned. That's where a lot of the you know those sort of jacket chokes and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, the collar choking stuff. That that's where a lot of that stuff yeah. came out of. Yeah, and then there was the Fusen Ryu. The Fusen Ryu was very interesting. It was founded. It was it was also a modern school, a bit like the Kanō Ryu, and it was founded by a guy called uh, Takeda Motsugai, from the possibly from the famous Takeda family. You know, Takeda Shingen and all that stuff. Takeda, for those that don't know, Takeda Shingen was one of these famous daimyo fighty guys from the, right, the distant yeah. past. He was a Distant descendant of him, and not that that had any effect effect on his jiu-jitsu whatsoever. I suspect, but, um, but that that particular guy also produced a couple of really good fighters. A guy called Tani, and I can't remember what the other guy was called. Um, but basically, said so, meike, I, I could be wrong. Uh, anyway, one of them was called Tani, and and those they, he sort of had these two guys, and those guys went around and started beating Kodokan guys. They started beating Kanos guys. Um, but by that time, Kano had built up judo, and a lot of this is also about how to make an income. You know, a lot of us dream about making an income out of something we love, you know, mm. um, martial arts or whatever, you know, and, and it's so, so few people actually pull that off. Kano did manage to get this thing built up to the point where it could actually bring in some money.
0: Well, that's and interesting, so, yeah, because I mean, that tradition well, has continued in jiu in Brazilian jiu jitsu. It's one yeah. of the few martial arts where you seem to be able to actually go full-time and make yeah. it, make a kind of a decent living.
1: Exactly. And so Takeda's two guys who went around trashing Kodokan guys, they didn't say, oh, we're better than the Kodokan. We're going to build the Fusen Rui up to be more famous than Judo. What they said was, ah, Kano's making money. Uh, can we come and join? Yes. <laughs> so, so they were the third strand. They came in the third strand. But the really interesting thing um, about uh, Kano and his... He actually had two top students, um, but he had to expel one of them. Uh, actually, uh, Tamita was, was, was his number one student, but he had to expel another one quite early on because um, mm. this guy ended up brawling <laughs> in drunken brawls with the police too often. Ah, right um, right. And so, so basically, that's another thing tamita you know one of the things you see in in judo and a lot of uh, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu they're a bit more relaxed than other japanese martial arts um a little bit more relaxed and i think because tamita's position in the kodokan was unassailable you know in in the uh in the, that time period that the, the uh, status in society being number one in the kodokan book you know that you've got nothing to prove basically uh, especially when he had this very successful fight record beating these uh these masters from other schools. Hmm. And so the really interesting thing was that Tamita took a guy under his wing called Maeda Mitsuyo. Um the famous and Count, you may have heard this yes, name. Yeah.
0: Count Koma. Uh, yes. who was um he traveled all over Europe, didn't he in event but he did end up in Brazil.
1: That's right. But the the, the key point is people think that Maeda trained under Kano. Well he did. Kano was there. Mm. Um but the bottom line is that the guy I, I suspect the guy that he got his sort of what should we call it fighty outlook from. Yeah. a <laughs> yeah. sort of relaxing fight was indeed Tamita, who was basically teaching. He was the head teacher at that time. Where Kano was off trying to turn I mean you're probably whether that Kano got interested in turning judo into an Olympic sport after a while. Yes, that's right. Um so basically Tamita, I think his Tamita's relaxed approach to training, and to, I mean, relaxed in terms of attitude, he, I, Tamita wasn't a, a shouty, screamy guy. He wasn't barking at people and marching up and down the square. Yeah, He, he was much more like, you know, he's a big fan of Randori, obviously, and, you know, big fan of that kind of thing, because he'd done all these challenge matches when he was younger. And so so basically this is how Maeda came along. To give you, give you an idea of the guy's ages, so in 1900, this is the year of the Boxer Rebellion, mm. Kana was 41. Tomita was thirty-six and Maeda was twenty-three, so I give you an idea of their relative ages at, at that time, the time of the Boxer Rebellion. Uh-huh. And so, so effectively, Maeda also made a bit of a name for himself. I'm, I'm, you know, we're now getting into BJJ history, and you know, it's 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 probably you know time for me to to um, cut out a, a Maeda arriving in Brazil. But let me yeah. give you a little bit of background in terms of what was happening with Brazil. At so, so, time, so
0: the question is, why were all these Japanese guys going out around, around the world?
1: That's, that's a very good question. That's the question I've got. So, uh, Brazil as a nation, uh, or Brazil—shall we say a different way? Brazil became a nation uh, through their War of Independence, which is in 1822. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it, that's when they declared independence from Portugal, and. They had the opportunity then to do things. You know, Brazil had been under the under the domination of Portugal for a long time. And so, you know, decisions in Brazil before 1822, they weren't really made by Brazilians. That's probably the best way to put it, yeah? yeah. yeah. Uh, they were made by Portuguese, Portuguese. authorities. And so, and there's a peace treaty signed with uh, Portugal. Portugal actually, rec- after the war, Portugal recognized Brazil's independence. It was 1825. And so, effectively, what happened was Brazil was now in a place to make its own decisions. And you know, to the—I mean, I don't know what the modern government of Brazil is like. I, I don't tend to follow modern history. Oh but well, you've
0: just—you've just, you've just straight into a, a, a very hot political <laughs> potato there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll let you go in Bolsonaro. You know, they've just elected this new guy. All right. Everyone, everyone's up in arms about it. Completely. Oh, okay, yeah. He's—he's okay. he's very, very far to the right. Shall we Careful. do to say? <laughs>
1: Careful who you vote for, yeah. yeah. Um, and so so just to say that Brazil was unable to make its own laws. And one of the early things they did, this was 1850, is they uh, effectively abolished slavery. You know, and you say, well, lots of countries have abolished slavery. The UK abolished slavery. But, you know, it was a big deal for Brazil because their, their coffee, it was a coffee economy. A lot of their money was made from coffee, the coffee industry. And they um, they basically abolished slavery, and who was running the coffee industry was the slaves, right? Yeah. yeah. So I mean, it's quite a noble thing, isn't it? You know, despite the fact that our country is heavily dependent on on slavery, we're going to abolish it anyway. Well, that's kind of cool to me, you know. Yeah, yeah. So basically, that's that's why they needed workers, and they started recruiting Italians, and they um that didn't work out so well. Um, and so then they started recruiting Japanese, and that's ultimately why so many Japanese ended uh, in. Okay. Because, then,
0: because the abolition of slavery created a, a labor market. Created
1: a, a vacuum, exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know. In those days, Japan was nowhere near as rich as it is today. <laughs> you can't imagine. Yeah. Many modern modern Japanese going over to Brazil to work on the coffee plantation. Maybe they do. I don't know. And what I do know is that the, when the Japanese landed in Brazil, some of them became very enterprising, and a lot of them ended up as owners of the ca- coffee plantations. And so they, you know, they, they they weren't just the workers. They didn't stay workers for for very long. A lot of them actually became quite wealthy out of the Brazil trade. And also, you know, the, after after the Bakumatsu period, when the, the Satsuma and Choshu samurai effectively overthrew the Tokugawa government, after that period, Japan went into almost exact opposite mode. the The very young Emperor Meiji was restored to the throne in 1868, and you know they call it the Meiji Restoration. It was more like the the, the cabinet of the Meiji Emperor's restoration. <laughs> yeah, but it was a, it was a more progressive government mm. at least early on it was a more progressive government and they wanted to learn from the people who had humiliated the tokugawa yeah which yeah. is and especially the british
0: yeah so because, this is the opening up of japan now
1: yeah so what happened after the anglo satsuma war when the british flattened uh, which is what I was getting along to with that long story yeah, that we were flying there. all over this the place. Yeah, we're, we're, we're so, coming back so what happened <laughs> So what happened was the Satsuma the Satsuma guys didn't do what a lot of guys have done in, in some of those martial arts classes. When they get trashed, when there's something new they haven't seen, they don't say, oh, I'm not training with these guys. Yeah. They say, oh, bloody hell, I, bloody hell, I want to learn that. Oh,
0: yeah, they don't go, I just, I'll pretend this didn't, didn't happen, and I'll yeah. never go back, which is the reaction you still get today. From some people yeah, who, exactly. who experience kind of a complete flattening, yeah, <laughs> there should be a word absolutely. for this. There, like a complete flattening, is <laughs> there a word that means that? Um, I, the, the desire to
1: completely flatten someone is called. Sac- in japanese but you know, that's, a, well, then, that's probably that's more like a desire to completely kill somebody yeah.
0: <laughs> so, well maybe, you that's, know, maybe that's not exactly what i mean but
1: uh... as you know i'm a big fan of knife fighting so you know although we use plastic knives or wooden knives you know it's um you know literally that's you know if we were using real ones which obviously we're, we're never going to but you know that, I, I, that's what it's about I, that, that's one
0: know? area i know nothing about knife fighting sure um, uh, but you know, you know I'm glad I know nothing about it, really, in a way. Well,
1: we're going to do a swap, mate. You're going to teach me the BJJ, and I'm going to teach you knife fighting. I
0: can just imagine... What I I'm imagine is your defence <laughs> to a
1: triangle choke
0: is once a triangle choke's on, wait till they've almost got you, then pull your hidden knife out of your gi yeah, yeah. and stab them in the leg, you know? <laughs> or if, if you're lucky, it's the leg. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, I don't want the triangle choke on in the first place. <laughs> but, yeah.
0: But the, I, um, I think that'll be your last resort, would definitely be... It's not tapping, it's pulling your hidden knife out, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah yeah uh well it not necessarily hidden you know you, people think about it like that you know but you know a lot of that stuff came from uh, what we talked about a lot of that stuff came from uh, that that practice of the Kumuchi practice of of wrestling somebody to the ground pulling out your knife and sticking it in their armor yeah uh, this is this is the origins of jiu-jitsu right yes, this, that's and right, one yeah. of the one of the early schools that did that was takanuchi-ru just just to recap before we go Back to the Takenuji rule. Let's just recap on what happened with Satsuma. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Satsuma did this. They got their ass kicked by the British, and they didn't say, oh, I don't want to talk to the British. They said, we want to make friends with those guys and learn how to fight like they do, yeah? Yeah. That That's what happened. So the Satsuma province was one of the first to start modernizing. And it was this, and they made friends that had a formal treaty with the British, uh, and they formed this, like I said, they created this secret agreement with the Choshu clan. Uh, Choshu was actually one of my, one of the teachers in my own, uh, lineage or heritage or what you okay. want to talk about it was, it was a guy from the Choshu clan, a guy called Chobei. And so they made this alliance. And because they won in the Boshin war, they, they, won, they were on the winning side. When it came for the new Meiji Emperor and the, his cabinet to choose their overseas allies, who did they go to? The British, because the British were backing the Satsuma guys who'd put, effectively put the Emperor on the throne. Yes. Yeah. yes. So, and also, um, this is my, my teachers, one of my teachers, the teachers in my teachers tradition. It's quite a long bit, but I don't know how many generations it is. This guy, Shobe, he, he was a very young man at the Bush during the Boschian War. He still fought in all the battles and he, Ended up escorting the emperor up the Tokai Road, the famous trip up the Tokai Road, when he went up to to take his throne, effectively. Oh. Um, he, he was, because he was involved on the winning side, and he would put, the, effectively, him and his mates had put the emperor on the throne, and he would fought well. He was picked as one of the empire's bodyguards, uh, and so he ended up um, in the Imperial Guard uh, very early. He was one of the first members of the Imperial Guard. Very interestingly, there is a link between him and the uchi no Ru, but it's not my not not what you might think. So I'll tell you a little bit about his story, and then we'll get up to no Ryu. Now the no Ryu is one of the early uh samurai schools. Remember we said there's all this non samurai stuff that yeah. doesn't get recorded in history going on, but yeah, in yeah. terms of samurai school that give rise ultimately BJJ, uchi no Ryu is where we want to end up. So So Shobe. He was uh, a kind of representative of the old school and a representative of the new school he'd done well under the tokugawa he'd become a like a he'd become a, a a trusted retainer of the choshu daimyo at a very early age like we're talking like 16 you know he's he fighting in battles when he was 16 years old you know and so he went into the imperial guard and he he was in it quite a while but when he came out you know by that time he, like I say, he was, he was 20 when he was escorting the emperor up the Tokai road to Tokyo. And the fact that it's a really famous journey in Japanese history. The beginning, it's, it's the symbolic beginnings of the Meiji era. I think it's a bit like Jesus coming into Jerusalem on his donkey or something <laughs> like that. You know? it's like, that kind of a thing. Uh, so he, he stayed in the, the, in the Imperial Guard for a few years. But then this was the time when there was this great enthusiasm in Japan for westernization, for modernization. And he, he wanted to be part of that. And so he basically, with his wife, he, he opened a shop. Um, it was called The shop was called Tokyo-ya. It's very enterprise. Now it's very Western. I remember in, in the, the past, the merchants have been one of the lowest classes in society. Oh. Uh, slightly above the burakumin or Eta that, that we talked about last time, the scum. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, only slightly, yeah. <laughs> and now here's a samurai aspiring to leave the military and go and open a shop called Tokyo-ya. Uh, in Kobe, Tokyo, yeah, it just means the Tokyo shop. It, what you wanted to do was sell in Kobe the kind of wet, the, the luxury Western wares that you would get in, you would get in um, in Tokyo, yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is this is a, one of the things that people forget about this time period. So the time period we're talking about is sort of eighteen seventy through nineteen twenty-five. Yeah, that time period, mm-hmm. Japan was incredibly Western leaning in that time period. Mm-hmm. A lot of people were sick to death of the samurai. They they just had enough of them. They they were sort of recognized that they were had been institutionalized bullies for the last two hundred odd years, and and that they'd been a, a bit like a parasite on society. And it it sounds strange when you say this about what Japanese people thought the samurai were a bunch of losers, you know. But they really did during that period. A lot of them really thought that the samurai were disbanded. So you know, anybody who claims to be a samurai after sort of. 1870s, 1880s is a liar uh, because they were, you know, it, they were written out of law. There was no such thing as the samurai after that. Yeah, I and mean, I guess um, they didn't
0: perform any useful function either, did they?
1: Well, they hadn't performed a useful function for years. Yeah, apart from being they? like bullying, uh, yeah. you know,
0: institutionalized bullies, or you know, yeah, essentially yeah. kind of legalized gangsters, they didn't really have yeah, a... effectively nobody was fighting they, wars using samurai, were they?
1: Exactly, and no, well, there weren't any wars to fight. So, except during that that period. The, the, that, the, that final period, the fall of the Tokugawa, the old school samurai were fighting on the side of the Tokugawa, and the new modern army of the samurai, the Satsuma and Choshu guys, were fighting on the side of the Emperor Meiji. Oh. And those guys had been trained by the British, and they kicked ass, basically. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so there was this great thing. So there's there's uh, Shobei. Uh, uh, he, he aspired to leave the military. Uh, he had been born into high ranking samurai. He aspired to leave America and open a shop. What a guy, yeah? yeah? He also, he's one of these guys who is very, very uh, characteristic of his times. He also uh, is like holding down a second job, you mm. know, and he he got a job at, as in the railway. And his wife ran the shop while he was working on the railway and this sort of stuff. And and basically, cut a long story short, he did very well in the railway as well. The, the railways were part of Japan's economic boom at that time. Oh. And he became station master at all places he could have become station master at was Sanomiya. Now, San Nomiya Station is one of the busiest railway stations. It's, it's the biggest railway station in Kobe. You probably know Kobe is quite a big place. Uh, it's famous from the earthquake, but it's quite a big place, yeah. yeah. Um, it's the busiest, and he became station master. Um, and this is, you know, this is in the 1870s. This is the time when, you know, being, a, being an engine driver anywhere in the world was like, you know, or a station master was quite a prestige occupation, yes, you know. Yeah. Um, yes, I think it was like in the Victorian era, the, the, the train drivers, you know, the guy who was driving the well, sorry, the, the, the flying Scotsman and stuff. Uh, they, were, they were next to the queen in importance. That kind <laughs> of, you know. uh, not quite, but, you know, that, that kind of idea. Uh, they're very proud of their, their economic activity. And so he, uh, of all places, became station master at Sanomiya. Sanomiya. Uh, just around the corner from Sanomiya Station is the tiny Sanomiya Shrine. When people see it, they tend to be a bit disappointed. Mm. But the Sanomiya Shrine was also the founding place of the Takenuji Ryu School of Jiu-Jitsu. What, what, so effectively, you've got two great martial arts masters who are associated with this shrine. Uh, from complete, one from Kenpo, one from Jiu-Jitsu, yeah. Mm. Uh, well, kenpo in the broadest sense you know i, I described what i mean by kenpo yes in, in the last episode yeah yeah, yeah 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 and so what i think was that that, that it wasn't an accident that shope chose sandomiya you know i think it wasn't an accident so anyway Takinuchi hisamori was a late uh sengoku warrior and he was an expert you know so what, I've said, what we've said is a lot of the schools, the Kito-ryu, uh, the Fusen-ryu, and by a roundabout way, the, the Tenjin-shinyu-ryu are all descended from schools that are descended from the take no Uchi, as well as other schools, yeah? So they they're all, all of the schools that ended up in Judo and ultimately in Jiu-Jitsu, in, in BJJ, came uh, part of what, a lot of what they learned came down from this guy. take no Uchi, Hisamori's tradition. Now, when I say tradition, Guess what, Takinouchi Hisamori specialized in?
0: Was it the Hans ground fighting?
1: No. Oh, <laughs> knives? <laughs> no, it was staff. Staff. He was an expert of the staff, the okay. stick. Yeah. So, so I hope you guys are still practicing it, keeping this tradition, uh, keeping this tradition alive. Yeah. What staff? So.
0: Yeah. In Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Uh... <laughs> I'm joking, mate. I'm joking. Yeah. I was going to say you know, that. Um, yeah, it was a joke. I could lie and say, yes, of course we, of course we do. Yeah,
1: so he's, he was renowned yeah. as one of the greatest staff masters. He did sword. He did staff. He did all sorts of things. Most weapons. Yeah. Like most guys at that time. We said last time, you know, most guys at that time, they did all sorts of things. Yeah. So. And he just happened to do, you know, a little bit of that sort of Jiu Jitsu kind of stuff, which effectively did Shinko Zumo. Yeah. So again, I'm simplifying just to fit this in the episode because I see where we're we've become, we've actually so around the hour again, mate. It goes, goes fast, doesn't it? I know, it?
0: but I don't think we're we'll likely to finish it. So, we need to finish this off. Come on. Yeah,
1: let's come just on. Keep going. So let's let's go. just
0: keep going.
1: So this guy uh, had a little bit of that sort of stuff, mostly like Shinko Zumo. So you can think of his grappling was like, I'll wrestle a guy at the ground, and and I'll I'll stick something in him, yeah, yeah? Yeah, yeah. If I have to, but it's not important to be because I'd rather knock his head off his shoulders with my staff, which is what he was famous for. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so he's Hisamori started passing down a, a, a tradition, and a lot of his students and students of students and students of students. You know, you couldn't really say he was a teacher. It sort of passed down in his family, and it, you couldn't say that. I mean, although oh, it's called the Takinochi Ryu, and he's credited as the founder, he probably didn't think of it like that at all because he was Sengoku, yeah? Mm. But the, the next few generations were into the Tokugawa period, and the later masters of the school and the other schools that splintered off it, they certainly were thinking about, in a put things in little boxes, Tokugawa kind of way. And so those guys, there was no wars to fight anymore, so being the experts of the staff wasn't that useful to them, yeah? Mm. So they started getting into the Yawara, the uh, the jitsu uh, probably aware that Yawara and ju-, ju from Judo was the same, and jujitsu is the same. Same thing, yeah? yeah. Um, they started getting into all that stuff because that's much more relevant to guys who don't walk around dressed in armor with he- heavily armed. Uh, they walk around in everyday clothes. They might have a sword or, or something on them if they're lucky enough to be samurai, but other than that, they might have to do some grappling. Yeah? Mm. It's certainly short weapons, not long weapons. Yeah. So effectively, what happened was there wasn't much in the way of kind of submission techniques because submission techniques were, were not that useful in armor. You know, you imagine, you know, yeah. while you're trying to choke somebody. Have you seen those samurai helmets, you know? Yeah. <laughs> trying to choke somebody out with one of those on, you know. Yeah. Even if you can actually get in position without being run through by his naginata or whatever, you know. And, um, you've,
0: and you've got a little knife or something that you want to stick on yeah, the armour yeah. anyway. So you don't need to arm bar him because...
1: Yeah. But if you're, if you're a drunken samurai wandering home from the pub, and and a, but you get surrounded in the night by a, well, the, the Japanese equivalent of a pub, uh, in a drunken stupor, and you get surrounded in the night by a bunch of teisaki we talked about those guys last time, mm. who want to beat you up with clubs and stuff. Uh, you might well end up grappling with those guys in everyday clothes. Now, the, the samurai were not used to grappling in everyday clothes. That wasn't what they did. Mm. Um, they were, you know, they'd go on the battlefield, they're heavily armed, you know. And just like all real soldiers, the guys from the Sengoku period, they had quite good discipline, they had camaraderie, they weren't going to be fighting amongst themselves. You know, real soldiers, they they have a kind of brotherhood, right? They have that kind of thing going on, and they got each other's back more than, you know, yeah, yeah. within their little groups. So it's not,
0: all, it's not just individual fighting, is it? It's...
1: Exactly, exactly. It's and, fighting you know, as a
0: group, which is different again, yeah.
1: Yeah, and as you know, I teach a few people from the military, and it's still like that in the military now, you know, mm. and that, that sense of camaraderie, and it's, it's not about one person being successful, it's about the whole team being successful, you know, yeah. and and that everybody on the team feels that everybody else has got their back, you know. Yeah. Then it became like, like this more individual grappling kind of combat thing, became more prominent in the school. They didn't, actually, the Takenuchi school, even today, they still have their sword, their staff, their naginata all these kind of different weapons they still do it it's just it's not their focus anymore it's changed gradually over time but what they wanted was submission techniques and they didn't have them because they, they might have had a few but shrine sumo the shinko sumo wasn't really about that it was more like like you've seen with sumo and later professional sumo which is a bit of an exaggerated version yeah professional sumo was like the first bit of the guy's body other than his feet to touch the ground it wasn't quite as bad as that in terms of its rules but it was it was certainly it wasn't bjj kind of rules yeah yeah, yeah. um so so they needed it from somewhere else now we said last time that there's this whole series of chinese teachers had come in during the sengoku period and the Ash- even the early Ashikaga period because the ashkaga were very open to china they respected china they want to learn from china yeah and one of the last guys to get into Japan, the very last guys to get into Japan before the the Tokugawa shut the door and locked the country, uh, was this guy, Tien pin hmm. And he arrived in Japan in 1621, and he was the guy that supplied those submission techniques. Um, because the Chinese people did fight. They already had this kind of idea of martial arts schools and different martial arts and all that kind of stuff at that time. The Japanese didn't. And he was the guy that supplied the shi- submission techniques. His stuff was pulled into the Takinouchi ryu at a later date, like third or fourth generation. It was also pulled into the Yoshin-ryu, which went on to create the Tenshin Shinryu-ryu school. That, that was the first one that Kano studied. It was Chingen-pin uh, stuff was also pulled into the kito um, which is the, the kind of I believe is the main school that influenced Kano in terms of judo, and it, it also I
0: think influenced the Fusen Ryu as well. Um, so he does this, this. I mean, I've heard of him before. This Chin Kenpin. Um, yeah, he's quite. He's, he's always dredged up as the the link between China and Japan.
1: Yeah, the only one, the, right? Say, yes, exactly. Yeah, like, like it, these two it, countries it, right next door to each other, yes. have never heard of each other except for Chin Gen Yeah, until he arrived there, no
0: Chinese man <laughs> well, set foot on. Was, in what was
1: what was unusual about him is the country was already locked when he managed to get in. Now nobody knows how he managed to get in, mm. um, but Japan was already starting a lockdown well under the Tokugawa by that time period. He became, He's like the la- he
0: became a national, a nationalized Japanese. Person, yes,
1: but think about it: the, the earlier Chinese guys were more like advisors or military experts. They were there to help the guys in the Sengoku period and the earlier people to fight better, to fight battles better, to fight wars better. They were military advisors, military trainers, Mm. just like the British government gave military advisors and trainers to the Satsuma clan later on in the same way. It was that kind of an arrangement.
0: Whereas this guy lived lived in Japan. Shin
1: Genpin, yes. This guy, Chinbankin, moved to Japan at a time when the Tokugawa had started to do neo Confucianism. Oh. Yeah. And people were thinking about things, starting to think about things in terms of actual martial arts schools that they could put brands on and one family school can be better than another family school and all that kind of yeah, stuff. This that you've the, got today. The, the yeah,
0: this is the start yeah. of what we'd call like martial arts in a more modern sense.
1: Exactly, and the earlier Chinese guys weren't in that mode. They weren't in Japan when Japan was in that mode. Nobody in Japan was in that mode no. when they were there. This is why Jen, Ching Genpin gets touted around. Um, he gets also, all the glory
0: essentially for all the work that for, for all, everyone yeah, else absolutely. from China did before him.
1: Yeah, well, not just China; people from Japan as well, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, oh, yeah. yeah.
0: But, like the shrine sumo people, and you no, know, yeah, that. absolutely, exactly, I mean, exactly. So many, so many. Like as we discussed in the first episode, all these different threads intertwined. Yes. completely.
1: Exactly, and Chen Genpin was also. The kind of guy the Japanese would respect. He was a scholarly, uh, but also of great fighter, and all this kind. So he was a sort of guy who would fit into that culture quite well. I suspect he learned Japanese like in two seconds, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, you know? um, so very, very,
0: a, very able person.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and so, so effectively, the, those two strands, Chingam Pin, uh, you know, which effectively he was the last Kenpo master before 19, before the very early nineteen hundred. when you when the, you say that brand. he
0: provided the submission techniques, I mean, what are you? Is that just your feeling, or?
1: Oh no, because because the the bottom line is that they're not in Shinko Zumo. You know, it's impossible to say they weren't in all Shinko Zumo. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Because every different shrine in the whole of Japan had a different version of Shinko Zumo, so I'm sure some of them did. I don't, I don't think he provided like they didn't have any submission techniques, and he provided he or he's a catalog of submission techniques. Mm. But the kind of martial arts that were around in China at the time did have that kind of stuff. Yeah. And these, this was kind of the, the forerunner of Chinese grappling systems. Yeah, mm. but So, so Chinese grappling systems also had... So what happened with judo with the strikes being taken out? They also had that, but they had it much earlier. Yes. Um, so they'd had longer to so, develop
0: just the grappling aspects in isolation.
1: Exactly. And so I don't believe he just came and gave them grappling techniques that they didn't have. I think it was more like he was a bit of an expert in them and they they wanted to learn off him I think it was much more like that yeah yeah and i know that he he had an influence on the yoshin ryu he had an influence on the kitor ryu and so those are the two main styles that inf- sorry the, the yoshin ryu via the tenjin shin ryu and the kitor ryu via the, uh, directly both had a very strong influence on kanō and so that's kind of the the pattern by which this stuff came in but just remember also when kanō was around Although they weren't, they were down on the samurai, um, late, you know, Kano lived a long life. So in later life, he, you know, the, the samurai's image got revived before Kano died. Yeah. Oh. Um, so, but basically in, in Japan, that was with the, the rise of the, the militaristic government later on, in the late 1920s and 1930s. Um, but at this time, there was the Meiji government were trying to, uh, unite. Japan in the same way that Britain was united and the same way that Germany was united and the same way that USA was united based on nationalism. Huh. Um, so they're trying to substitute new Conf- nationalism for New Confucianism. And so one of the things that actually happened is the the role of Ching Ken actually got downplayed. Um, and so the fact that people even still know about him shows that he had a really big role because those guys were motivated to downplay him. Yes, Stuff that came from Japan... Was was to be played up and stuff that yeah. played, came from China was to Ka- be played Kanin down. Kanō so, was
0: quite down on him, wasn't he? In yeah, his writings, I mean, he did, he, sort of, he he had some influence, but it wasn't very much. Was yeah, was basically yeah. his the summation of his
1: and and, and also you know that at the same time you know when Funakoshi arrived, he had to rename karate, didn't he? You know it was originally it still was called karate, but the what you know the, there are um, homophones in in Japanese. Karak can mean lots of different things. So they cha- changed he, it for different. He ones, changed you know? it from Chinese hand to uh, empty, empty hand. hand? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Empty hand. And so this was the same motivation, I think, for Kano playing down. Kano desperately wanted Judo to put Judo on the map. And to give him his due, he succeeded, didn't he? You know, mm. He got got it in the Olympics, apart from anything else. And uh, oh, interestingly... Yeah, that, and it's um,
0: everywhere, isn't it? You know, just, it's in every country.
1: Interestingly, here's here's a, a final thought, because we're way over our time. Yeah, we should map. wrap it up. A be. final thought. Remember the guy Shobe that I mentioned, who was the station master at San Nomiya, yes. where the, the Takinochi Rue was founded? His teacher, one of his his teacher, one of her descendants. His teacher was a she. One of her descendants was the um, was the teacher of uh, or was the teacher or trainer of Anton Giesing, this guy called Shosen. And so one of Shoubei's teacher's descendants was the judo teacher of Anton Giesing. I think in Dutch is pronounced Giesing. Uh, who was the very, very first person ever who wasn't Japanese to win a gold at the Judo World Championships. Oh. That was a guy called Shosen, uh, Nakayama Shosen. And he, he was also one of the guys that got Judo put into the Olympics. And, you know, getting it, Kano and guys like, uh, uh Shôzen, they really, really wanted it put in the Olympics. And, uh, final word on Anton Hesink. He's recognized as a 10th Dan. Uh, based on his achievements by the International Judo Federation, but the Kodokan refused to acknowledge it because he's not Japanese.
0: Right. <laughs>
1: they are. Uh, the bigotry reigns strong yes. even in the modern era. So, just, yeah.
0: just to, re- re- to recap on Shobei, why were we. I, I've just lost the plot there on where we were going with yeah. him and what, where, what he led into.
1: Oh, mate, there's so much. Um, so I think we'll do another episode. Okay, yeah. So should we pick yeah, up yeah. Shobei? Uh, Summarising about five episodes there, I think. Yeah, yeah.
0: okay. So yeah, Shobei yeah. for next time, part three. Well,
1: Shobei joined together with another tradition. Yeah, so after he'd fought for the Choshu, after he'd been in the Imperial Guard. Opened his shop. And then the, <laughs> Opened his shop. Station, station master. Station master. He then met a new teacher, and, and she was a shaman. Yeah. Oh so, right. So he- okay. here's the link with shamanism. But we, we, we probably haven't wanna jump back again in time and start telling the history of Japan and in in a more spiritual way, you rather know, than in a, in a more martial way. <laughs> uh, yeah, you were dead right, mate. You were dead right.
0: <laughs> it was inevitable. There's no escape. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, incidentally, although she was a shaman, she um she disarmed two Yamabushi. Remember, we talked about Yamabushi last time when she was unarmed. Uh, two Yamabushi. So she was a badass swords. as well.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though she was a shaman, yeah. <laughs> um, I well, as we were recording this, I got a, some feedback on our last episode. Um, I don't know whether we want to just i i feel like if we don't maybe we should leave it for next time because it's it's up
1: to you man i mean this level so is a titanic one anyway so whatever
0: <laughs> okay let me just let me just read you this um this is from a, a, guy, a lovely guy i know uh he's he's a he's a really good martial artist actually uh there's cool. various various different martial arts um uh and he knows a bit about japanese history uh but he he sure. the, the point of our podcast is we are the heretics so we're giving you yeah. a slightly different version of history than people are used to so his reaction sure. is really interesting to me because he said uh, your podcast was really good mate it would be better if it was more balanced um, <laughs> as many historians see the Tokugawa era as the real birth of honour and the arts in oh, Scarecrow's element. I know. elements bear with me in the Japanese yeah. martial arts uh, really uh, David <laughs> Clee knows his stuff uh okay. and he definitely listened to another episode so he's on board so
1: so that's cool so i, I think it's a good point i, I do believe that he's right about, on the point about honor but let me let me give you a different slant on honor here's a slightly heretical slant on honor and we'll pick maybe we'll pick this up next time it's a really interesting point actually thinking about yeah. it honor cultures there's a positive and a negative to them yeah So think of, one of the things I learned, now I'm not sure if this is true or not, but I believe I learned this in a behavioral biology lesson, so there must be some truth to it. The murder rate in the north of the USA is much lower than the murder rate in the south of the USA. But all other crimes are the other way around. And that's because the old Confederate states, I believe it's because the old Confederate states had a strong honor culture. Hmm. If, If you're in New York and somebody calls you a dumbass, you probably call them a dumbass back. And walk off. <laughs> if you're in certain parts of the South, if you call somebody a dumbass, they're likely to shoot you. Yeah. yeah. And so there are positive and negative aspects to honor culture. But of course, I'm well aware. I used to I used to live and breathe it. I was a Tokugawa period groupie two 20 years ago.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know. I, so it's a
1: good point. So we'll, we'll pick it up next time, maybe. Yeah,
0: I mean, if you're going to challenge people's worldviews, they're not going to just change overnight are they About no that's
1: great that's great I, I don't know when remember on this podcast we're not trying to change them uh, if there, if you want us to try to change you head over to the Wolf of podcast oh yes that's right
0: this this is this, this is there's <laughs> we're no, not trying to change anybody there's no call to action involved no. with this podcast at all is absolutely yeah. not um yeah. just just the call to be offended <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely all right then let's round it up there uh and then we'll we'll start with um your man shobei again next time cool all
1: right cool let's do that